What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Podmosh. Today we have Mark Hayworth. He is one of the directors in the Parkland ER, which apparently is the busiest ER in the country. So I learned a lot from him. He talked a lot about resources with COVID, um, some of the things about the controversies surrounding the disease, and then how we got to where he is today. Super interesting, super knowledgeable guy. I love speaking with him. Hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Thanks. All right, we are live, Mark. Thank you so much for coming out to and I guess be on my show, be on my podcast. Yeah, of course, man. Anytime. Mark Hayworth, right? That's right. Yep. All right. Tell me what you do. Currently, I am uh, one of the ED directors over at Parkland. Okay. So, been over there for a little over two years now. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's, it seems... Has it been that long? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I feel every minute of it, and sometimes it doesn't feel quite that long. So, okay, so can I, so you, I worked with you at JPS in the ER for how long were you there? Uh, I was there for almost four years. Okay, three to four years around okay. that time. Yeah, and then you left JPS to go to Parkland as a well. Well, actually, I left. So I left JPS first of all. I went to Texas Health and worked in as a CSOER, which is um, it's like a traveling nurse for Texas Health. So I worked at multiple ERs for them. So did you like to, pick line stuff? Well, I did that in between during the same time that I did the, the Texas Health stuff. Okay. So I worked. Um, I went to Denton. I went to uh, Alliance. To, I went to downtown Fort Worth. I just worked at a lot of their ER. So you just went in, you trained for like two days, and then you were on their staff, and so you just picked up shifts at multiple places, which was which was cool. Which is learning experience. It's nice to see how everybody else did it yeah um i mean nowhere's like jps nowhere's like parkland um why clientele for one thing um public and private is it's different um county really county versus any any public uh or any private institution is just much different Mm. um i don't know how to explain it really yeah um other than your clientele. Yeah. Um, you really, and I've told this to everybody, even people that I hire, you either love it or you hate it. There's really no in between. <laughs> so, and you'll find out real quick if you really, um, there's stages of getting to really enjoy it. And there's stages that it's like, okay, you can tell this person's not going to make it. Mm. Um, and you can work around it and try your best to keep them and, and work through some of the stuff, but you know, good and well, you've, you've been through it. Mm-hmm. It's takes, uh, a different mentality working in that atmosphere. It's a special kind of someone that I don't know if it's, it's something like day shift and night shift. There's two different types of people. I can't do night shifts. Like night shift people props to you cause I can't do it, Yeah, but I get that. Um, before we get into how you got to where you are today, mm-hmm. I'm really curious. Um, what exactly do you do on a day-to-day basis as a director of, you know, <laughs> level one trauma? So yeah. The business ER and, the country um, is it really <clears throat> yeah we see parkland uh, is yeah see two hundred seventy thousand people a year what? so it is uh almost forty thousand more visits than any the closest one actually like, i think it's sixty thousand more visits than any hospital in the united states no way yeah yeah you look it up it's, that's crap. what how's uh the bed er how many beds do you guys have we have 102 that are staffed um we actually have <clears throat> so parkland is and you heard like listening to Shuri as listen to her podcast I was talking about on the way here and she works in what's called our OGIS, which is like a female and she doesn't work for OGIS, but 
we can get into the politics and all that behind Parkland if, if we want to, but um, <laughs> actually probably shouldn't. But, probably not. Yeah. Um, We're just going to talk about you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, let's, uh, let's stay away from the, the politics, but there's, there's multiple ERs inside of one big ER. So it's trauma has their own section. It's different than how JPS is set up. Yeah, so I heard about that. Yeah. Trauma over at, J- at Parkland is its own department. So they have their own management team. They have their own directors. Um, and then they have, it's, it's called a program. And so. And compare that to JPS. So at JPS, JPS has a similar setup. Once you get to the management level, they have their own part. Uh, JPS has their own trauma division. Um, but their nurses are the same mm-hmm. as far as the ED goes. So your ED nurses work and your ED techs work in trauma. So they're trained to do both after they've been there for a certain amount of time, whatever that is now. Um, but at Parkland, the trauma nurses don't work in the ED and the ED doesn't work in trauma. Okay. Which um, in a lot of senses for a lot of our staff is a drawback once they figure that out. Hmm. Um, they want to be, a lot of ER nurses go into ER thinking they're going to do trauma. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And or want to do trauma. And, uh, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on that, but I'll stay away from that yeah, too. Yeah, we could stay away from yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because we do have, we have a lot of things that cross paths. Um, the trauma at, at Parkland only has eight beds. And so once they fill up, they dump over into the ED or, they'll pass. So we have to like, if a trauma comes in and it's not an automatic level one or level two meet certain criteria to be over there, then we'll do what's called a drive by. So we'll drive by their trauma nurses. will look at it and say, Oh no, it doesn't meet criteria. You can take it over to the ED. So we still take care of a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. We just don't see the gunshot wounds and the stabbings and, and all in the car wrecks and NVCs, all that stuff are the major ones. We don't see that. Okay. So, um, but we get all the ones that are the scary traumas, you know, the ones that are pelvic fractures that you don't know about <laughs> and end up putting in a back burner, thinking, oh, no big deal, and then come down and they're decompensated and in bad shape. So, you, since you brought it up, explain why that's a bad deal. Well, so, pel- I mean, pelvic the pelvic injuries are the scariest, really, for, to me, because they come in stable, their blood pressure looks good, they're not really complaining of a lot, um, but they could have nicked an artery or something. Cause there's a lot of things that pass through that pelvis. So what is it? Two thirds of the body's blood. Yeah. And it pelvis? can hold a whole, I think I forget exactly how much blood can be held inside the pelvis without, without any signs of it being down there. And next thing you know, they're, they're truly decompensated. Mm-hmm. Uh, example of one of my, one of our patients we had over at JPS, we had, shoot, I don't remember three or four gunshot wounds come in. And it was getting late and they were all level one. So we were trying to run through those, get those to OR, whatever we're doing. And then this uh, MVC that had been there probably an hour before got pushed back into what we called the back hall. And we kind of settled down from the gunshot wounds and they're trickling in and, and getting them out of there. And we walked back there and it was a young guy. I forget exactly how old, but his pressures before were, you know, 130s over 90s, whatever. We get back there, he's 60 over 40. Mm-hmm. And we're pulling the transfusers level one out of trauma level one and pushed him back there and trying to get him back up. And there's nothing really you can do about that. Like, <clears throat> you, you know, you follow all the protocols on the initial uh, call when they first come in. You know, you do the, the primary, secondary assessments with the doctors. You know, you square them away. Yeah. And then, and then you kind of realize, okay, 60 over 40, they're, 
They're bad. They're tanked. And that's because of a pelvic fracture. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. So back to um, what you do kind of on a day-to-day basis at Parkland. So really uh, my job revolves around just taking care of the staff. You know, that's it's one thing. It's one reason why I got into management and leadership was um, I feel like it's important at this level that you are the voice of your staff. Um, and so I spent a lot of time. What I do differently from what I've seen other people do is I spend a lot of time trying to get to know my staff and getting to know what they need and what they want in order to do their job. Um, and hmm. so that's with the staff, the size that we have, um, which is how, is how much we have about 500 employees in the ED. So we spend, I mean, there's a lot of things that people would say, Oh, you do a lot of trying to hear the voice of the staff and then it gives them time to come in what we, they call, I don't know how, how we want to, how, if we want to be PG on this podcast, but call bitch sessions or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not, you know, it's, it's learning. You really need to give people an opportunity to voice what they, what they want and give them that platform, but also be able to correct and and say, kind of push them in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So I would say probably 50% of my job is, is spent doing that. And the rest of the time is attending meetings and listening Mm -hmm. to, to things that looking at metrics and how we can improve and trying to make adjustments to what we currently do. Um, you know, COVID is, it is what it is. I want to get into a little bit of that because you posted something that I want to get into a little bit later. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, um, so you, you are really employee centered. You really want the employees to have a great experience that they feel heard. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not normal, especially at your level. And you have a master's in what? Uh, well, I have two. I have a master's. Of course you do, in, too. Uh, <laughs> no, you're good. I, I have a nursing is second career for me. I have a clinical physiology degree that I was prior to becoming uh, a nurse, which is it's cardiac rehab. We what we use is physical therapy for the disease population is what I call, call it. So um, we do a lot of uh, you were able to do exercise prescriptions for um diabetes, heart disease, all of that. And our main focus in that program was people who came out with uh, open hearts, fresh hearts, what we used to call them. Um, And we would do, pick them up day one, post-op day one, and we would get them out of bed and start walking them and trying to do Hmm. and get all that. Um, And that's a master's in clinical physiology? mm -hmm, Clinical physiology, yeah. Man, that's that's awesome. I don't know that. What's your undergrad in? Uh, My first undergrad was in kinesiology. Oh wow! My story. If you were going to start from okay, the beginning, let's just let's crazy. just do it chronologically. From the beginning, <laughs> I remember because so it, reason why I really like liked your story initially was because right. you and I talked a lot about that um, yeah. when we worked together. You told me, "Hey man, keep pushing with whatever you want to do. Keep pushing." And I still am. You know, I'm, I'm working on my degree as well. Um, nice. But you you told me you know at one point you were working with three jobs, janitor, mm-hmm. um, wife. You have four kids now. Fourth, you just had the just fourth. had your fourth. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. So kind of start at the beginning. Okay. So, (laughs) um, I actually, so I don't know if any, I don't know how much of this, you know, and obviously the listeners don't know right now, but, um, in high school I was, uh, I, I, I played football. Um, and I thought I was going to go to college to play football. Um, or I did college actually to play football. Um, my junior year in high school, uh, actually my sophomore year in high school, I, was, I went to Granbury. We won state in soccer. Hmm. Um, and I, soccer was kind of, I played my whole life, enjoyed it, whatever. Um, played in high school just kind of as something to do. I'm one of those people, I have to be busy or 
I'm going to be doing something I'm not supposed to. <laughs> my parents said that my whole life. I mean, that's just me. Um, and I've had to keep that mentality as I've gotten older also, just always doing something. Um, so I played soccer. We won state. Um, enjoyed it, but kind of going into my junior year, I was also played football and kicking was what I thought was going to be my golden <laughs> ticket. Um, I actually participated in a camp by a guy named Ray Guy. He was... Um, one of the he was the first punter ever drafted in the NFL. Hmm. Played for the Raiders. He puts on a kicking camp that goes throughout the country, um, and it was during that summer that he recognized me, and I was on a list for uh, up and coming kickers to be watching for. And huh. so I started getting a lot of calls and letters and and that kind of stuff going into my junior year in high school. Um, and several of the people that I was working with had said, you know, you need to stop playing other sports, just go in and focus on football and kicking. You need to stop playing safety and hmm. this is what you need to do. Well, my parents and, and even I was, you know, I can't do that. I'll be in too much trouble. So any, my football coach at the time, uh, coach Peterson, he said, no, you know, we really, you need to continue to play with your sports and do that. So, and adding on to that, I had uh, going into my junior summer, uh, one of my best friends, it was right after this camp, actually, uh, he died in a car wreck and I had played soccer with him the year before and uh, talking to his parents, I said, I told his parents I'd play my junior year uh, just as part of him, as part of playing for him and stuff. Hmm. And uh, going into the last game of the season, we we're in the quarterfinals, playing El Paso de Valle in Midland. And... Uh, Man, I just turned wrong. Ten seconds in the game, I just turned wrong. Tore my ACL. Oh man! Tore both meniscus. Um, and I, I tell everybody the story when when I fell, like I kind of blacked out, and all I saw were field goal posts. It was I don't know, it's mm -hmm. crazy. Um, and people think I'm joking, but I'm serious. Anyway, that <laughs> it was it was one of those wow. surreal moments that like you felt like something it just changed. Yeah. So I had surgery, repaired my ACL. Um, kind of all the coaches around that were recruiting heard and basically said good luck mm. and see how it goes um, I came was that your kicking leg that yeah oh man yeah so I came back my senior year and I made it back for the last six games um, and did pretty good still doing alright um, and got some letters got some offers to play at small schools um, and I ended up going uh, to play uh, where did I go? I went to Austin first. I was going to go to University of Texas. I was going to try to walk on back to University of Texas. There's one school that was interested, but after a tour, I, I didn't. Uh, they said, well, we'll see about walk-on. Um, after I tore my ACL, they said, we'll see about your walk-on, see if you can do it that way. So I went down there, spent some time, and realized, you know, this isn't I'm – not, I'm not where I need to be. Um, and while I was down there getting prepared, I tore my meniscus again. Um, so Golly. I came, yeah, I came back home. I had it repaired and I went to Tarleton. Um, and I actually was there and I told his coaches when I came in, like, I, I just want to come here to rehab. I don't really want to play. I want a red shirt and I plan on leaving. Um, it, it was a young and dumb mistake and looking back, but I told him that. And why was it young and dumb? Well, because I could have, I could have enjoyed a career there and played there and, and actually, um, just, had my school paid for and, and played football and, and never looked back. Mm -hmm. Um, but I thought, you know, I want bigger, better. I want that division one 
scholarship and, yeah. and do all that. So um, it was in the middle of the season. Everything was running pretty good. And they had asked me, they came in and asked me to take my red shirt away to have me kick off. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And it just, um, we, we butted heads and I quit showing up to practice. They called my parents. I mean, it was, hmm. it was a big deal. Um, but I, after that point I went, I tore, I actually tore my knee again, um, and tore and oh, got my yeah. meniscus fixed. I went to a junior college for like a week and <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, this isn't going to work. I'm done. <laughs> so I headed back to Tarleton and, uh, ended up just going to school. Um, I talked to the coaches several times and I kind of burned my bridge at that point. And so, um, I never, never went back, never played again. It was, uh, looking back, like I said, if I would have just stuck it out and and done it, I probably would have played and enjoyed four years of Well, hindsight's 2020. Exactly. You know, so, you know, it's just never, I learned from that lesson. I've I've tried to learn from everything like that and Mm -hmm. you're never get too big for your britches really is the, the point I learned from that and. You never know what's going to happen mm. and, and uh, don't ever burn. So that that's bridge. actually really interesting because, you know, you're in a spot right now that's a successful position. I mean, to get to, you know, two master's degrees, uh, a track through kinesiology, cardiac rehab, um, JPS, now Parkland. Mm. Yeah, but that's a that's kind of a big deal. And that lesson learned back then is really, I think, paving the way for how you are today. You know, where, yeah, you're, you're kind of in a nice position, but you're in a position that's like people recognize, I, working with you and alongside you, I recognize you're not normal. <laughs> like you're, you're different yeah. and that's cool. Um, and, I'm, and it makes sense now that like you learned that lesson back in high school and that's literally shaped who you are today where now you're like, Hey, employees, let's see how we can make this better. Let's communicate. Let's, you know, try and make this a two way conversation, not just suck it up and move on. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and there's. Every time we, I go into like a job, if I've ever been to a job interview, there's people, they always ask the question, well, what, what kind of got you to this point? Where, what job changed your mind? Um, along with just how things went through sports. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier was being a janitor. I had a master's degree. I couldn't find work. I couldn't, it was during the recession and there's, I was working as a janitor and a part-time football coach at a private school in New Jersey. Um, and I learned a lot. Just you, sometimes you got to do what you got to do, and it's humbling. And knowing that, you know, just because you have a piece of paper, you still have to have the ability to work, the want to to work, and and understand that sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. It's kind of funny because your story, even you telling me that you were Jenner back then, and then looking at you now, um, has always been in the back of my head. I don't know why. You know, I still remember we were talking in Trauma Hall, and you told me that story, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Today, even where things have never gone how I wanted them to go, you know, I never thought I'd be a stay-at-home dad. You know, I never in my wildest dreams I thought I was going to be a doctor. You know, right. traveling the world, and then all these things happen, and then I'm like, man, this is not how I expected my life to go. And then I remember you telling me your story, man. Mm-hmm. I, I had a master's degree. I was working as a janitor. That's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, then I went to nursing, and and now you're director of the of the of the busiest ER in the country. And so that has inspired me to be able to do more of the things that I want to do, even to, so do the things I don't want to do to do the things I want to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you you just got to do it, you know? So after high school um, or after college, what happened next? Um, so it's important for me because I had a, I've, I've had mentors 
at every single stage of my life. Somebody that's, I've never been real confident in my ability to go to school. I've never really been in, real confident in my ability to learn and, and test and all of that stuff. Which is hilarious because yeah. you're one of the smartest guys I know. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it's, I don't know what it is. I mean, I just never, I have two sisters that are brilliant. Um, it didn't, it wasn't work for them. Um, and, but they learned differently. They, they learned from an early age academics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I wasn't somebody that I can't read it and really get it. I have to see it, but if I see it, I can do it. Um, I was one of those kids that took everything apart and when <laughs> I knew how to put it back together. I figured mm-hmm. out how it worked. That's, that's just how, that's how my mind works. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important for really everybody. If you can figure out how you learn, everybody learns, everybody learns how you learn is different. You know, um, you might could read a page and instructions and understand it, move forward and, and be good to go. I can't, if I watch you put it together though, I got it. Hmm. We're good. Which is the kind of frustration for me and all, on how a lot of the, uh, the education system is today. Mm-hmm. They always want to teach you the kids, whether it's grade school or high school or college, like they want to teach you one way and you have to learn it that way. And if you mm-hmm. don't learn it that way, you're special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's messed up. Yeah, you get tagged pretty early as, oh, well, that one, mm-hmm. they're going to be, we need to put them in that class so that they can learn how to do things differently because that's just going to be their life. And, and can you imagine if like our entire system was actually built around changing uh, how you teach to the person? Yeah. That'd be uh, crazy. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. Side no, 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 <laughs> but, but no, but it's, it's true though. I mean, yeah. um, I think, but I think that you can take that in every single level. Um, you have, mm. there, there's about three ways that people learn and it's, you know, tactical, visual, auditory, all of those things. Um, and, and combining them into one resource and how you teach is how you're going to get most people to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that comes from us because we're constantly at, at the, at what we're doing at Parkland level, at every level is we're constantly changing. Mm. Um, and so having to teach people how to do that, it's so it's so simple to get caught into the processes and just saying, send out that email. I mean, I'm guilty of it. Mm. And I'm just going to send out this email, check that box, move on. Um, and that was one of the other things moving into leadership is I don't want to do something just to check a box. Um, hmm. it, you know, there's so many things that come down from leaderships above that say, hey, we need to address this and take care of this and make sure this works. Well, it's easy just to say, OK, well, let's put this process together. Okay, that box checked and move on, but it doesn't change anything, you know. Um, so if so, if, why does that not change anything? And what have you done to to change? Well, I mean, people people don't pay attention to it. It doesn't have any meaning to them. If you don't give somebody a reason why you want to do something, that's huge to me. You have to be. If if I'm going to tell you that we need to change this, but I just tell you it's because I said so, <laughs> you're going to have a few people that say, "Okay, fine, we'll do it," but most people are going to say, that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to mm-hmm. do it the way that works for me because I'm quicker at it. I, I have other things that I'm worried about. I need to do this. But if I give you the reason why and get you to buy into it, you're going to hold everybody else accountable around you to do the same thing. And so mm-hmm. that's how you get movement. Um, and that's, I mean, long-term goals, that's that's where I'm headed. That's what I want to do. Um, but Man, I don't know. There's, there's so everything, everything that I've done's led up to where I'm at and kind of put me, put me with the idea, ideals that I have and, and why I want to do what I do. Hmm. Um, and it all stems to, you know, as a nurse, as a tech, as a, 
EMT or paramedic, you, your patients are what you care about. And as you move up, your patients change. You know, my patients aren't necessarily the patients anymore. It's, it's the staff that's taking care of the patients. Mm-hmm. And that's how it has to be viewed. I need to give them the tools to take care of the patients. Not that I don't care about the patients. I do. Mm-hmm. But I'm not the one laying hands on them. Yeah. And if I'm giving you the tools to do that job, you're going to be much happier with, with the appropriate tools doing it in, this, in the way that you want to do it. Yeah. Um, which in turn makes a better system. Mm. Um, I mean, and, and taking care of the patients that can't take care of themselves, that's, that is the Parkland and the JPS. That's why I do what I do. Mm. Um, there's, I don't, I, I'm not saying I'll never work at a public hospital again, but I mean, a private, private hospital. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I would never say that I would never do that, but, um, it means a lot more to me being at, um, a Parkland or a JPS. Um, it just, you see the outcomes better. Hmm. You deal with a lot more. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's uh, one of the things I heard Cherie say is uh, in her drug rehab is you see the same people come back every day. Mm-hmm. You have your regulars and then you get built, you, you get used to those regulars. And when they don't come in, you wonder where they're at. You know, what happened to that person? Where are they at? We need to check on them. Mm-hmm. We do that all the time. Either. See, I kind of, it's kind of funny because I, I was almost so tired of the regulars because I saw that like, because they're homeless or because they're taking advantage of the system, they're not really, uh, they're actually like, I'm paying for their bills. So I'm paying mm-hmm. for the medical bills and mm-hmm. I got, uh, and I'm still working on not hating homeless people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest. Right. Right. And I, I'm trying not to, like, I'm trying to like, okay, where are these guys coming from? It's kind of funny. Cause in one of my, uh, I'd, I'd write a 2000 word proposal, simulated proposal to the mayor about how to fix our homeless population. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out like, you know, one on average nationwide, one homeless person costs, uh, the city that they're in around $40,000, um, in economics mm-hmm. for them to live there, even though they're homeless, you know, the things that we, that we pay for it comes to about $40,000. Right. But it's, if you give them these, uh, kind of the top down, if you, if you give them almost a tiny house, like it's like $10,000 or $15,000 for a tiny house, they see what it's like to actually live in a home and they don't want to lose it. Mm-hmm. And then you start building a system around that idea and you, you actually save, oh gosh, I added it up. It was like. So right now, Tarrant County spends around, this is, this is a rough estimate, it's like $80 million in the homeless population. I think you would save about $60 million if you just did this system. Yeah. It's just things like that. Right. So I was having a hard time like actually caring for these people because I, yeah. I really didn't like them. Yeah. So to hear you say that, that's awesome. Like, I want to be like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it, it takes, it does take stepping away from it and, yeah. and seeing because you do, you get so, you know, it. And I, and we deal with it every day. And, and it's one of those things that I, I just, I just saw you, like you just came through this ED, like real seriously, 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And we have these people that we discharge and they go check in, mm-hmm. they discharge, they go check in. Or they call 911 because they want a taxi drive. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's frustrating, but I, I mean, you had to put, I put myself in their shoes. I don't know what I would do. And it, and it's not fair to make the assumption that I know, um, yeah. Because I don't, um, and I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what happened to them before. I don't know why they're in a situation mm-hmm. they are. I mean, the, the everybody jumps to the conclusion: oh, they're just you know they're out there looking for drugs. They don't. They have a drug problem. They have this and that. And we don't know that. I mean, our men. 
if we want to get into that kind of that kind of talk, our our mental health resources in this world are horrible. If we really mm-hmm. wanted to save money and figure out, we would dump a lot of money into mental health and figure out how we can f- how we can better serve that population. Well, it's kind of funny you bring that up because that was one of my topics in the proposal. Where there was a city in Italy, it's nineteen seventy eight. It's like Tre- not Trebek, but uh, it starts with the T. Um, they got rid of their 1,200 bed ho- uh, hospital lockdown facility for mental health. Got rid of it completely, closed it down, and replaced it with like community housing mm-hmm. and uh, people with mental health, like severe mental health, whether it be schizophrenia or severe depression, whatever it is, um, could voluntarily come in. And the staff that uh, had is like if you walk, almost like if you came into my home, it's like, hey, let's let's talk about your anxiety and your depression. How can I help? And there's just people in plain clothes. There was no locked doors. They could come and go as they please. There was no fear that we were going to juice them up with medicine. Right. And that's that has, has led to a lot of our mental health crisis today, the system we have in place. Yeah. And so all they did, all the city in Italy did was take away the prison system <laughs> pretty much and replace it with a community-based, connection-based uh, housing system. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, there's... You're, just like you said, there's there's so many things that we could explore, but we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it saves us money in the long run if we do it, but we're just yeah. not doing it. Yeah. I mean, huh. uh, I know that we're going to get on this topic later, but I think that COVID has kind of highlighted a lot of um, downfalls in the healthcare system. Um, and really not even so much the healthcare system, but in our population. Um when you say and, our population, you mean like our local area or no, America? America. Okay. Just just our thought processes. Um, everybody, there's there's not a there doesn't appear to be a whole lot of um, I don't know what the right term is, but people don't really care for anything but themselves. <laughs> and and I don't and I and I mean that in all sincerity. You know, there is there's a point at where, and that's what a, one of the things on that post that I talked about is. Emotional intelligence is huge. Like having the ability to step in somebody else's shoes. So being somebody that's in the oil and gas business, I realize that this has killed your business. You want to go back to work. You need to go back to work to prepare, you know, to provide for your family and this and that. Um, but there's more to it, you know, in my opinion, there's more to it. Uh, and you have a different perspective, which is, that's kind of, again, why I wanted to talk about this idea. So let's just jump in. Let's yeah. talk about exactly what you want to talk about with COVID. Well, I don't know. That thought, the thought process that, you know, there's so many things going around that are just misquoted, you know, just, well, if it's my right to do this and it's my right to do that, I understand it's your right to wear a seatbelt, but you're only hurting yourself if something happens to you. You know, if you get COVID and you give it to somebody that can't protect themselves, then that, I mean, technically could we, could we consider that assault or manslaughter or how do you want to look at that? What if that person dies because you gave them COVID because you didn't want to protect yourself? You didn't want to wear a mask, hmm. you know? And I think that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions on, and I know people think it's conspiracy on these masks and it, I get it. I understand you don't want to be told what to do, but I think if we taught them how the reason why the reason masks are not going to prevent you from getting COVID, they're going to prevent you from dying from COVID is my, from what the, the information that I have received and the research that I've seen, it's all about the viral load. Mm. And there's- Can you break down viral load, please? Yeah, so not in, not in specific terms, of course, but 
make it how my mind understands it. And I'm very simple minded from this and in, in this perspective is if you're wearing a mask and I'm wearing a mask and I cough, most of my mask is going to hold what I've got, whether it be cloth, whether it be paper, whether it be whatever. However, you know, if it's not the N95, it's not that most protective, it's not going to protect all of it. But if you've got it, got a mask also, it's still going to prevent part, you're going to prevent particles from coming into you. So the amount, so if I cough and have that protection, the amount of, if, if I have COVID, the amount that's in that air, that respiratory, uh, what's the term, droplet air, whatever you want to say, however it's, it's uh, passed on from person to person is minimal because you're getting a very minimal because most of it's caught in that mask. Now, if I'm sitting here and we're sitting right next to each other and I cough and you're not wearing a mask and I'm not wearing a mask and I'm sick with, with it, you're going to get a huge, you're going to ingest a huge viral load. And the way that I understand it in layman's terms is your immune system at the point where you've digested so much viral load can't catch up because your body doesn't recognize it. And so by the time that virus continues to replicate, it's overtaken your immune system and now your immune system can't fight it anymore. Whereas if you get a small dose, it's just like a vaccine. You get a flu vaccine, you're getting the flu, but it's a small enough dose that your body learns, recognizes it and can fight it off. It's the same exact thing with COVID. Like now that you have a small dose of that COVID, of COVID, you're not going to get as sick. You may not get sick at all, but your, your body recognizes now that you have a virus in you. Let's fight it. Now you've developed immunity, immunity, or you developed what they're calling, it looks like it's going to be T-cell immunity that ends up really having what we're going to see, which in the long, in the long term is going to be much better than just having the the short-term immunity. Because short-term immunity is, is typically within uh, antibodies. Right. So you have antibodies, which the typical flu is roughly 90 days. Mm-hmm. I think they're finding that antibodies are uh, are built up and actually wane at about the same mark with COVID. So roughly 60 to 90 days, your antibody will actually decrease because mm-hmm. that that's normal. It's almost like, you know, you... You have a lot of antibodies during the middle of the crisis, and then it's that as whenever you fight it off, your antibodies become a lot lower because you don't need a lot of that. Right. And then the memory T cells are the other type of uh, immunity, but they're called memory T cells because it remembers what mm-hmm. it is. So it's almost like if correct me if I'm wrong, if you know this, I don't know, um, but it's almost like memory T cells are like the brain. They're like, Hey guys, we have an issue. Let's send in some more antibodies to fight this thing. And right. it, all your entire system kind of jumps up again when it has that. Right. So right now our th- the, the balance is when our T cell immunity, our antigen and our antigens, all that, um, it gets overwhelmed mm-hmm. with a concentration of the virus. Mm-hmm. So if it's a high concentration, we can, of course, be taken over by the virus. Right. And aside from all like the science beyond, and even whenever um, we say, and a lot of people say uh, all these fun facts about COVID, you right. know, we can break down the all, however much we want to break it down. People always go to, okay, but it's 99, 9, 99.9%. Uh, like my, my immune system is 99.9% effective against the virus. Mm-hmm. So you just, you, you still have a, a really good chance of fighting it off. Right. So today we you have at Parkland a surge in hospitalizations, which is what two weeks lack from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like you count today's hospitalizations based on two weeks ago, right? Right. So break that down. Why are you having this surge? Why has it concerned you? Um, 
there's a little bit more. I want I want to hear your perspective as a director of Parkland, mm-hmm. um, in the context of COVID, because you're not just a layperson. Mm-hmm. You you know what you're talking about, but I also from the administration side, whenever you have this surge in COVID, where you're not able to take care of a lot of other people. Yeah. So kind of break that down a little more for me. Excuse me. Uh, so from an administrative side, well, we can start from kind of what COVID has done to the administration and what we look for. Um, now we can get in. There's 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 numbers that we look at, but like you mentioned, so we looked at, let's go back two weeks from ago, from now, we started seeing a surge, which would have been about the middle of November, which we can tie back to Halloween. So people started getting together at Halloween, having their gatherings. We kind of expected that within 10 to 14 days, we're going to start to see a surge of COVID, um, which we did. Um, And then also about that same time, they started relaxing all of the masking policies and the bars and opening back up and all of that. So perfect storm. Same thing, exact same thing happened and was it Labor Day, Memorial Day, whichever one happened in May. It's the exact same thing. Is They relaxed all the policies, relaxed all of the staying at home, bars are opening up, people can go to restaurants again. And two weeks later, we had an influx of patients, uh, knowing we were going to, because it, and it just comes up. Um, you know, several things that they, they, they track that, we, we, we can guess at that. The nice thing that was saving us before was that there was stay-at-home. People weren't going to work. People weren't going to school. And so when they weren't at school, we didn't have a lot of people showing up to the ER. I mean, our volume dropped tremendously. Yeah, We went from seeing, on average, 800 to 900 patients a day to 400 patients a day. So, in, <clears throat> so you're seeing 800 to 900 patients a day in a 100-bed ER? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's pre-COVID. And now, even right right today, we're still, we've dropped some lately, but we got back up into 700s um, as of about three weeks ago. We jumped back up. But the numbers then, once we started, once the media started talking about having the COVID, started seeing COVID numbers rise, we started seeing our ER numbers drop a little bit. But then as the individual started to get sick with the flu, started to get sick with uh, diseases that, that, that become prevalent at this time, like CHF, because of the holidays, people are eating more uh, salty foods and other things, which is causing them to retain fluid, which is causing congestive heart failure to be more of an issue, which is causing also causing asthma because of the, the cold weather. It's, there's a lot of disease processes that get worse in the winter. Um, and so they have to show up to the ER. Um, or they have to show up to their physician. And so having that mixed in with the people who have COVID, um, you're, you've got problems. Um, Cause there's already <clears throat> during the, during the holidays, there's already a, a very big surge because of flu, mm-hmm. because of cold weather, mm-hmm. um, without COVID. Right. So when you add COVID, it really just amplifies things. Yeah. Well, and, and so the way hospitals have handled it and every hospital's done it a little differently, but, um, like at Parkland, we have separate floors and it's, it's well publicized, but we have separate floors that are for the COVID patients. Yeah. Um, and so we'll push them into different floors, but what, what that does is it prevents. So if I block off a whole floor 
for COVID and say that's 65 beds. Now, if it's only got 30 beds in it, I can't fill that up with the other 30 patients that might need it. I've lost 65 beds to COVID, whether it's full or not. And then as soon as that spills over, I've got to open another unit for that. And so as we open those units, you're losing you're losing beds, you're losing occupancy because you can't double those patients. There's there's just things you can't do yeah. at that point. They've got to have, not to mention the testing and the testing resources and the stress and the, and the pain that's put on nursing staff, uh, clinical staff, lab staff, all mm-hmm. of it. I mean, it changes daily on the amount of testing that we do. I don't know how aware you are of what, how many protocols or how many platforms we have to test people but just at parkland we have five pro- platforms that all take a different time to result hmm. depending on where the patient is and what's going on with so the patient. are those five tests yeah okay so can you can you break down those tests for me because yeah. i didn't know that <clears throat> yeah so there's there's like a rapid test yeah. so if which is the least accurate right well not in the hospital not in this sense it's it's okay. actually very accurate all of them are very accurate it's just the resources that it takes to to use that test Hmm. So like, not like a 15 minute test, not like you're going to get at a C, like, no, I don't know what CVS doesn't, but some of these urgent care centers, you'll mm-hmm. see that they have, oh, we'll have your results in 15 minutes. I think they're about 60% accurate or something mm-hmm. to that effect. They're not accurate at all. These are closer to, don't, don't quote me. This is not, obviously I don't have the papers in front of me mm-hmm. and don't have the research for me, but it's about 9%, Roughly. 90, 95% of uh, We'll say B minus A, A minus. Yeah, it's 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 good. Yeah. Um. So, but there's a limited resource. So, like at Parkland, we're limited to how many we can use a week. And once we get to that limit, we're out of those tests. So we have to go to another platform. So what we've had to do from that perspective is really categorize the patients. So if you come in and you're sick and we believe you have respiratory symptoms that are related to COVID and we need to admit you, we're going to give you a test that takes the least amount of time so mm-hmm. that we can move you upstairs. Cause the longer you're holding a bed in the ED is longer than I can't take care of the patient in the waiting room. Um, and that's, that's a huge strain on the ED. That's what, that's where more or less where I was going with the statement was once we run out of these resources, once I run out of beds, once I run out of vents and run out of places to put people, I can't take care of anybody else. We can't do anything about it. Like you're going to walk in and you're having an MI. You don't have anything to do. MI, myocardial infarction, heart attack, whatever you want to say. You walk in the ER, you need immediate attention. But if I don't have anywhere to put you, I don't have anything I can do for you. Those are, those are the ones you're not going to hear about. Those are the ones that aren't going to show up on that tally that, Hey, COVID caused this many deaths. Like, yeah, it did. But how many did it cause? Because we were too busy trying to figure out how to handle it, hmm. you know? And I, and I thought something that we've really struggled with in the ED because when COVID first came out, we, we divided the ED, we put up plastic walls so that we split up. Like if you had, if we thought you had it, you went over here. Otherwise you went over to this side. And when the volume was down, it was okay. I'm like, okay, well we can do this. We have room to see patients and, and make some, make some, uh, make some adjustments to what we're actually doing to make sure that everybody's safe. But as we've gone forward and volume has started to increase again, uh, we, we can't do that. We can't separate them. And we've learned, as we've learned a lot more about the disease itself, it's not necessary. You know, wearing a mask, wearing a face shield, all of that. And if you're wearing a mask and I'm wearing a mask and, I, and we both have a face shield on, there are chances of getting it 
are as good as they are minimal. Like it's a very low risk that you would get it at that point. Um, and, and they're actually, they won't furlough you if that, if you came in and what I mean by furlough, they're not going to send you home. They're not going to say that you need to, you need to be home for 14 days and make sure you're not sick. Um, so again, just learning from the processes and what we're doing, we have to get back in the ED to, to determining if somebody's sick, if that makes sense. And not, not if they're sick, that's not the right term, but are you emergent or are you not? Can you wait or do you need to go back? Well, it's just like, uh, like, uh, like if a, if a mass casualty is going to happen and you tag them, exactly. tagging them black, green, yellow, red, whatever, 100%. you know, if, if which when, when say it like a, for instance, if a mass casualty incident happened in the Fort Worth or Dallas area, mm-hmm. um, and say a bomb went off, um, this is just for people to understand kind of the process. Um, if, Basically, a provider or whoever's on scene, whether it's a doctor or the primary medic or the captain of the, of the fire department, whatever their protocol is, um, they have a, a, a bag and tag or whatever they call it. Um, the triage system. And they just walk through and say, okay, this person has a pulse, but they're they're most likely not going to survive because their pulse is below whatever threshold. You know, it's only 20 beats per minute. We don't have the resources to save them. So we're going to put those resources to save somebody else who has a more likely chance of dying. So literally somebody could still be alive technically and you kind of have to, well, sorry, sucks. You got to move on to the next person, even though they're still technically alive. And so what you're kind of saying is it's kind of in that same situation Mm -hmm. at Parkland. You can have to choose what resources are going to go to who. And that's where you're struggling because those resources are, are kind of drying up. Yeah. Well, and we're not there yet, but... How full are you right now? Currently, we're actually pretty good. This, oh, good. Over the holiday, um, we we empty, we didn't empty out by any means, but um, on last census, we were around seven, a little over 700 in, in-house, which we can hold up to nine. Um, now, today's, after today, it's going to be obviously different. Mondays are the busiest ED yeah. day. And Especially after what, uh, Thanksgiving comes around. So next week, you'll, you'll probably see another pretty big surge, right? Yeah. We expect that any day, you know, normally in being an ED, you, can, you used to, before all this started, you could really kind of tell what kind of day you're going to have prior to the day start. Yeah. <laughs> um, you knew Mondays, <clears throat> Tuesdays. Full moons. Yeah. All that was going to be bad. Cold weather, bringing homeless in. Raining, going to bring your homeless in. You're going to end up with a lot of psych patients during this time. Weather changes, all of that. So you kind of knew. I've lost my ability to judge what's going to happen. I thought today was going to be horrible. We're going to see, you know, 900 patients. And cross my fingers, knock on wood, it hadn't been bad. Hmm. So uh, it's been slow. um, (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Uh, no, it's, I'm about to get punched by Mark over here. (laughs) Right. No, no. You know, it's, um, it's just impossible to predict. Like I I really, I keep thinking I've got it. I figured it out and it's, it's not, I'm not right. Hmm. And, um, it's really hard to predict to, to line up resources. I mean, I don't know how much you've, how much is people are listening or here. The the problem right now isn't really going to be COVID. It's really going to be staffing. Like we don't have, um, it, the hospitals all around are struggling mm-hmm. to get staff. People have left the, have left medicine because of it. Um, people are scared to death of it. People, um, you know, just 
are fed up with, with all the changes, uh, it's constant. When this first came out, I mean, we had something change every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we had meetings uh, for the staff to attend just so we could announce, hey, tomorrow we're doing this. We can't mm-hmm. do this anymore. We're running out of this resource or we're not going to get this. We don't have the beds. Or, Hang on, I got to kill this fly. This yeah. fly has been on me. This You're good. <laughs> got him. So resources, okay, interesting. So that so I've heard I've heard that before, um, and a lot of people who have not really been following the restrictions or have been taking COVID. So I so I had COVID and it sucked. It really did suck. Um, I didn't go to the hospital, but they wanted to admit me. Um, they wanted to keep me there because like I was I would like walk on my heart rate jumped to like one fifty five or something like that. Sat stayed okay, but I, it it definitely is, is it definitely sucked. Yeah. Flu for me was a little worse still, mm-hmm. um, but I could definitely see if, if it hurt, you know, the older population, it could kill them easily, right. which is kind of funny too, because I had somebody on the podcast, she's like in her seventies, got it as well, knocked and knocked her on her butt and she was totally fine. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but. Well, and speaking on that, same thing, you know, kind of with the flu, we know who's at risk. <laughs> With the flu, your infants are at risk. Yeah. Your older population, people that don't have an immune system or their immune system is down, they're at a high risk. You're still at a high risk for COVID, yes, but it it's affecting young people a lot more than than we were, were surprised to see. You know, I expect- like on a category wise, is it like an intermediate? Is it severe? Is it like you've seen a lot of high mortality with the young people? Or is it kind of like, okay, I have COVID. I'm scared. Like these people who are coming in who are my age, you know, yeah. I have COVID. I'm scared. Yeah. Um, there's maybe, you know, rails in the lungs, whatever. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And is it something like that? Or are they like, okay, you're on your deathbed? <laughs> well, yeah. A or is it case both. by case? It, well, it's case by case and a little bit of both. Okay. Um, so it, the severity really depends on how critical and, and that obviously I mean, I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, but it, it kind of doesn't, it's not the same thing as what I'm trying to say. If you came in, if, if we have to tube you because you have COVID, if I have to, if we have to intubate you, your chances of living are not good. Yeah. They're a lot worse than if you did. Um, do you know why that is? Well, I mean, it's a lot of it because the virus is already, we don't have antibiotics. I mean, Antibiotics aren't going to treat it. It's a virus. Mm-hmm. So, well, they do. They did show that um, the antibiotic is a great way to permeate the blood-brain barrier for the medicine to get in, though. Well, that's one, but it it, it also prevents the secondary infections. Yeah, that's the other. I mean, it doesn't heal it. And I and I and I and I want to be very clear on that. Antibiotics are are for secondary infections, and they're to to help expedite the, the use of antivirals and other medications that are being used. But most of it is. Uh, just like we would with the flu, it, it is it's medication that is supportive. We're going to support it. There's not a whole, we, we're not going to heal it. We're not going to cure it. Mm-hmm. We're just going to support you, your body, to try to to fight it off. You're going to have your own body is going to have to to do its work. Which is kind of interesting too, because even I, th- I think it was the World Health Organization who said that the overuse of antibiotics has created a huge issue. Yeah. So you have to kind of balance a lot of that too, because again, you the antibiotic is is a for bacteria. Right. You know, yeah. it's not for viruses. And I think a lot of times people are wanting the antibiotic, even mm-hmm. the patients where a lot of our medical system is based, like how doctors are based, are scored is based on the patient satisfaction score, yeah. which treat is directly dependent on how they treat them mm-hmm. and how doctors get paid. So it's really 
whatever the patient says, the doctor kind of has to do depending on the system that you're in. Yeah. And so if they would say, Hey, I have the flu, I need an antibiotic. And the doctor says, no, then the patient satisfaction score will drop. And then the doctor will get dinged or written up or whatever it is. Yeah. I've, I've heard some doctors tell me this mm-hmm. um, and it's become a huge issue, which now we have overuse of antibiotics because the patient populations have now become doctors, Yeah, right. <laughs> which makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And me touch on a great, a lot of great points on that. And sorry, that was a, that was a huge thing. I, I'm sorry. Continue. No, 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 but it, it still is. I mean, that's the, the overuse of antibiotics has caused a lot of, a lot of massive infections, um, that we can't treat, you know, bacteria is, is, it's been around since it's the first thing that was ever here is bacteria. So they have, it, it, bacteria itself has, uh, adapted and overcome everything that we've thrown at it and it becomes something else. So all of these bacteria that we're killing, if we don't, and that's one reason why going off on a different little tangent, if you don't finish your antibiotics and actually eradicate the the bacteria in your body that's causing the infection, it's going to come back resistant. And that's what's, that's what the real issue is. is Because the bacteria remember. Yep. They can remember. Yep. Just like our memory T cells can remember. Exactly. So you have to kill it, nip it in the bud immediately or else it's going to create something called MRSA. Yeah. Something. Or, uh, uh, what's it? Uh, what's the new one? Um, there's VRE. There's tons. Yeah, of them. a lot of super bugs that yeah. are killing people, and yeah. that's actually a, an epidemic that people aren't talking about. That's yeah. it's scarier than COVID mm-hmm. because there's no treatment. And there was a paper I did a while back that that was saying in the next hundred or 150 years we're going to be uh, back to this like the 19 early like 1901 when antibiotics weren't really a thing. Like yeah. our medical system won't have antibiotics. Yeah. To be able to treat bacteria because we've overused them so much. Yeah. And there's, we're not like a uh, big pharma isn't keeping up with the demand yeah, no, because uh, of super bugs. Yeah. It's, it's in, it's impossible to, yeah. to, to continue to replicate. And because it's so specific, we have so many antibiotics that means we're going to have so many multi-resistant bacteria. Cause if you're using the wrong antibiotic to kill a bacteria, that's going to become resistant to that. Mm-hmm. And then when you try to use the right antibiotic, it's already resistant to that class or whatever it is. So it, it's a tricky balance, um, but that's one reason why I mean, blood cultures have become huge. Mm. And it's knowing exactly what's causing the infection so that you can use, instead of using the broad spectrum antibiotic, which is the VANC and the ZOS and all these medications that you come in. When, when we're concerned that sepsis is going to kill you, you're going to get a broad spectrum antibiotic because that's all we got. Like, Have you seen COVID leading to sepsis at all? Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, in the term sepsis, yeah. I mean, as far as the people that have come in and have massively infections and like they go into huge arms, lactate. And- yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, because, I mean, lactate is, is, lactate is what it is, but it's horrible. It's really not a great measure because if you have a seizure. Mm-hmm. 19. And, <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, you're, you've done CPR on somebody and somebody orders lactate. It's going to be in the 40s. Like, yeah, of course they're going to be. Okay, have so lactate. let's just quickly break this down. Lactate, um, it's it's a great indicator. Like we use it for um, like the POC mm-hmm. lactic acid is a great indicator for the initial diagnosis of sepsis if it's correlated with these other signs and symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, fever is one of them. I think tachycardia. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what the lactic is showing is the lack of the Krebs cycle creating ATP, right? Mm-hmm. So if the Krebs cycle, so if our body is like the mitochondria is the power, power of the cell, right? We, we all learned that in biology. Um, the Krebs cycle, will, it creates what, 36 ATP per cycle. Mm-hmm. And so if, um, 
and you need that's in the presence of oxygen that's the biggest right. thing right. so if you're lacking if you're not having a lot of o2 when your, your body's fighting an infection o2 is a huge uh cure honestly it's the it's the thing that gets our body it's being able to fire system yeah mm-hmm. so so the krebs cycle with o, in the presence of o2 creates awesome lots of energy but without oxygen um it goes to something called lactic acid fermentation mm-hmm. it only creates about four atp molecules yeah. per cycle yeah. so we test and use lactic because it's a great indicator when there's not enough fuel oxygen right in the middle of a severe infection. Yep. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's very, very well, yes, yeah, spoken very well. And my, okay. my simple one is that what I normally say is your your organs are now anaerobically working, which is inappropriate and I not effective. I could have just said that. Well, no, but, anaerobically working. <laughs> but that's but that but that's that's the true breaking. That's how that's how physicians think about it. Honestly, that's not how this simple-minded nurse thinks about it. It's like okay, they're sick. Because they're not getting oxygen to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now their, their organs, and that's one thing we use to determine whether they're in the multi-organ failure mods. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's just one tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it reminds me of another device we use. And uh, D-dimers, to me, are useless. Um, and not useless, but as an ED nurse, like why why do I want a D-dimer? It's not going to, it's going to tell you it. It, if you're having a clotting error in your body, you've broken a bone. Or so you D, have something, D-dimer is what? A D-dimer is, is just uh, something that talks about whether your clotting is elevated or not. Whether you have something in your body that is clotting more. Um, it's, it's a protein, um, I believe. I'd have to go back and look at all of it again. But I believe that it's part, it's, it is part of the clotting factors. And so when it's elevated, you're concerned that there's a clot forming in your body somewhere. So D-dimers are usually ran... To determine if somebody has a PE or not, pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolism. So, uh, but if it comes back positive, it doesn't tell you for sure they have a pulmonary embolism. It just tells you that there's clotting some going on, un, un abnormal clotting going on somewhere in the body. So now, what do you have to do? You have to do a CTA to make sure that mm-hmm. you don't have a PE. Where you know physicians that have have seen it enough know good and well that that's they don't have a PE. Yeah. But I've got it. Again, this is a system issue we've developed. Physicians are no longer allowed to be physicians. They have oh, to run protocols. Dude, yes. <clears throat> and they run down. Preach. That's the problem, though. You know, allow them to diagnose, but then also they're going to miss things. Everybody's going to miss things. And they get held to a standard that you don't like, you can't afford to miss anything anymore. Well, it's, it's so this is what has changed to. It's changed to diagnostic medicine, it's changed to the lab is is uh diagnosing you and not the physician right and that's been the issue even with covid in my opinion where like a lot of uh a lot of companies whether if your uh employees get covid they want that diagnostic test and Mm -hmm. especially at the beginning when the tests were horrific where 40 percent of them were accurate Mm -hmm. you know they want that they want that positive that negative but it was like over half of them will give you false positives or false negatives yeah so it's like how do you even do that wouldn't when the signs and symptoms are actually telling you, hey, this person has COVID, you know, I'm I'm 20 something years old, uh, I'm walking down the hallway, not during flu season, and my heart rate's 150s, and yeah. I can barely breathe. That's COVID probably because yeah. we have a lot of these systems, right. and that's just that's frustrating because yeah, it's a lab, and there's yeah. they're more prone to issues in my opinion than even some of the greatest doctors. Yeah. 
Well, and medicine has become, it's become a CYA culture. Um, we talk about this all the time and, and it's, which is cover your ass. Yeah. And, and it's litigation happy. So a mm-hmm. patient comes in, doesn't get what they want, whether it be the pain medication, whatever. Well, I needed those and I'm going to go back and I get complaints all the time about things that they feel like they should have gotten. And I'm not, I'm not one of those people that goes back, Oh, I'm sorry. You should have done it. Like, no, I'm sorry. I mean, it, you, you don't fit like you don't need that. This yeah. is why you don't need it. But this is another area where if I explain the why to the patient, it's very hard for them to argue that I, mm. you're not getting antibiotics because of this. Like you have a virus. If you understood what I'm trying to tell you, you don't need antibiotics. Antibiotics are going to do absolutely nothing for you. That peace of mind isn't worth the amount of amount of the antibiotics if you have return with a bacteria that we can't treat. So it, it's it's all about, and from a patient perspective, from a staffing perspective, kind of just turn tying it in a perfect little bow here is being able to patient satisfaction a lot of times can be healed with explanation and communication Mm. and being able to talk to somebody Um, which requires time it does and that's i mean that's another Mm -hmm. that's another issue we all know um you know that's one thing we try to teach in the er er nursing is i can walk by a door and my triage assessment's done like i can tell you that patient's (laughs) that patient's good that patient's not we need to go see this one. Mm-hmm. And that comes from, you know, experience. just time and experience yeah. and, and being able to see it. And that was one of the best things about JPS is mm-hmm. I knew I, you learned that quickly. You yeah. had to, you had to, or you got ran yeah. over. Oh yeah. Um, and it was a very trial by fire area. It's not yeah. like that anymore, but I, I honestly, I miss it. Like I, I was, I'm still trying to get on a PRN just to keep my skills up. Did you call out Chris Cook on here, man? Uh, dude, I texted him the other day, bro. <laughs> He's like, nah, man, I can't do it right now. I was like, ah. Yeah. They got part-time and full-time positions, but no PR positions. Like, I don't yeah. want to work two shifts a week. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Um, I actually talked to him, too, about trying to PR in, and I got turned down. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll mute the name. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it got to the point where I could be walking in public and, oh, this person's going to be dying soon. They probably have stage four pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're, they're a dialysis patient when I can tell their K is probably 6.9, you know, yeah. that type of thing. Um, so it's really lack of resources. All yeah. the things that we're talking about with COVID, yes, COVID, it is bad, but it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it seems like the main issue is we just don't have a lack of resources. If we had a bed for every person um, who had COVID, we could probably be okay. Yeah. Well, here's my... Here's my statement that probably is going to irritate people. We don't have to close. We don't have to do anything. If people would wear their mask, we could continue. If, if we would have been wearing our mask from the beginning instead of fighting this, I, I guarantee you we would be out of it. People, we would be able to have Thanksgiving, we'd be able to have Christmas. We'd be have all these gatherings because we would have already been to a point where it's under control. But people want to fight it. People don't. Don't believe it. They want to believe it's a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. If people would just do what they're being asked to do and protect themselves and protect their loved ones and wear a mask and wash their hands and do all of that, we'd be in a lot better situation than we're in right now. Well, there was an interesting topic that uh, came up in my class. My class, I just finished one of my classes called quarantine. <laughs> so it was pretty interesting. Quarantine was the one. And the other class was like public policy or something like that. Mm-hmm. So one of the topics that came up was... Like, yes, if everybody wore their masks and were less apathetic to the issue, it would fix it. It, it, it would, it truly would. However, 
the public opinion, the public perception of COVID um, was not communicated well by people who, now I'm not saying Trump, or I'm not saying, I'm just saying as a whole, like as a public person, me, you, mm-hmm. um, the leaders, there should have been more communication. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if say, wait, smacked in what, March. Mm-hmm. So if we knew it was coming in December, January, there should have been like a, a national preparedness or even just local preparedness saying, Hey guys, this virus is coming um, this is what we might need to do. You guys just need to be prepared. It's almost like, like I gave the example in my discussion board. Like uh, when I put my kids down to bed and you have, how, how old are your kids? Uh, a month, three years, and then six-year-old twins. I forgot you got twins. Oh. Okay. So when you put them to bed, they, they typically will fight you. Am I right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what I have to do is I'll say, hey, Ronan, Ellie, um, we're going to go night-night in about an hour. And then, hey, we're going to go night-night in about 30 minutes. Hey, buddy, five minutes. Go go pee pee and then let's go lay down. Way better if I just if we're just playing a game and I we all just stop and say, all right, gotta go to bed. They're gonna lose their shit. Yeah, like bottom line. Right. And that's kind of the situation that's I think it happened today. Yeah. With COVID is like if we would have just explained it a little more and said, hey, this is these are the things that we're gonna need to do, and maybe we would have never even gotten to the shutdown. Because yep. I don't really again it's like. The shutdown has caused far worse issues than the COVID itself, like the actual oh, yeah. disease itself. Oh yeah, and that's Most good. To, yeah, and that's that's good to hear the director of Parkland say that. Like, you know, you're you're in the thick of it. You see a very interesting perspective on things that are happening in, within your ER, mm-hmm. busiest ER in the country. Um, we can agree that the COVID, it, yes, it's real. It's not a conspiracy. Shutdown probably cause way worse things than the actual disease itself. However, you're still here with lack of resources. Yeah. And that's a nat- that's nationwide and that's yep. worldwide. Yep. And uh, another thing I don't, I don't think people bring about is like, why didn't we start like trying to exercise more and get more of a public health <sighs> fixing of our issues? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a terrible way to say it, but right, right, like, right. we're just not a healthy population. Like one of the right. biggest population as far as obesity in the world, yeah. if not the most. Yeah. No, and, I, I, and you'd bring about every season, CHF, COPD, asthma. Like we're just not a healthy population. And we should have at the beginning really push instead of just, hey, we need a vaccine or, hey, we need this cure. Like, hey, let's actually like hey, get your vitamin D on, you know, um, go walk. Right. I mean, the the research backing like a three, I think it was 150 minutes a, a week for a person does astronomical things for a person's health. Yeah. It's like those type of things. Like, yeah, I got really sick, but I didn't go to the hospital or I didn't get admitted and I was, I'm, I'm okay now. Right. It's like, why aren't we talking more about the overall health of the population instead of just the vaccine, the miracle silver drug, you know? Yeah. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> I mean, again, really a lot of great points. And, you know, I, I, I'm not down. I don't want to be down on, on kind of how we see things, but you know, I just, I don't think as a, as a nation that we really want to do that. We don't want work to be the answer. We don't want that working on ourselves. Oh, the perception. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We don't want that to be the answer. We want the answer to be that I can get a vaccine. I don't have to wait. Or I can do, I can take care of it. But if I, I were to eat right and to exercise and to use the vitamins, but I mean, just eating right and exercising is going to prevent 95% of the things that we deal with on a daily basis. 
Um, you know, there's genetics and things that play into all of that, but, um, you know, it, yeah, but our population doesn't want to hear that. And I, I think people need to realize that you don't have to just go on a diet. Like that's not what we're talking about. Like no. just, Hey man, maybe have a smoothie, take a multivitamin, uh, not have McDonald's every freaking day. There's a, ba- a healthy balance for this. It's yeah. not wrecking your lifestyle. Yeah. Just switch some ideas. Okay. I'm for yeah. morning. I'm going to have some eggs. Right. You know, and something else or whatever. And then lunch, I'm going to have a really great smoothie with lots of fruits and vegetables. And then for dinner, I'm going to have a steak. And yeah. then three times a week, I'm going to do aerobic exercise, which they found is the best way to be able to keep your, your body healthy from chronic, chronic conditions. So things like that. Yeah. You know, if yeah. if our entire population had that mindset, it might be a little bit of a different story. Yeah. That and communication. Yeah. But go back to... I just go back to the masking thing. You tell people to wear a mask and, and everything's good and people think it's a conspiracy. So you tell people to exercise and do this. Oh no, they don't want they, they Somebody's trying to make money off of me. The government wants me to do this because they have money put somewhere else or the big pharma is trying to do whatever. It's like Okay, so break down the, the mindset of that. What in your opinion is the core mindset of that idea? Of which of the of people thinking it's a conspiracy and that they want they're trying to be controlled and you know because that happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, honestly, in, yeah, in history, exactly. a lot of people do try and control. Even in America, like you know, you have a lot of governors in this yeah. the nation now who are really trying to do that very thing, right. control the population. And I, I think it, I think it's 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 a it's a mixture of both. There's a lot of conspiracies out there that are true, yeah. and there's a lot of obviously made up conspiracies um and to to be able to determine what it is i don't i don't know how you do that but i know in situations like this if people would listen to the experts like i i'm I'm, i don't want to politicize this at all but if you listen to trump just listen to him he doesn't know what he's talking about i mean and i and i just mean that in a sense that not not because i don't like trump but just or i do like Trump. i'm not i don't Either way, I don't care. doesn't matter. Yeah, you're not saying but one way or the other. He's not a healthcare expert, and he and he's not listening to the people who are trying to tell him what it is. Well, yeah. also, I think you talk about you want to listen to the experts. There's been a lot of just different narratives that have come out from the experts, yeah. where the CDC even ha- has said one thing and then retracted it, and the WHO one thing and then retracted it. Yeah. So how do we as people really filter that out? Where the experts are telling us one thing and then not. So. Yeah. If there was a, like a continual, and which, which I get, like it's a novel virus, it's brand new. We don't know jack squat about yeah. it, but there still has never been like a consistent push towards a, a common narrative. Well, in my in my humble opinion, if they were just honest about it, so if the CDC came out and was honest about it, because when so like when my IP. Doctor, when they came to us in the ED and said, hey, we know about this possibility of this new virus coming over to the... What, what's an IP? Uh, infection prevention physician or okay. ID doctor, infectious disease doctor. When okay. they came to the ED, I think the first time I heard about what they call it then, like the Wuhan flu mm-hmm. or something to that. I forget exactly what it was now, but um, I heard about it then. And they had a special meeting with us. Like January or... As early December, late December, early January, and okay. said, "Hey, just FYI." And our my first thought was, oh, "It's the flu, whatever. It's just a version of the flu." Because we've had the, the swine flu, yeah. we've had the bird flu, we've had these other things. I'm, I'm not worried about it. Whatever. Then a little further down the road, we start hearing about all these people in China, and and I think that that's where, I think that's probably part of where the conspiracy started because we really don't know what happened in China. 
we can't trust the inf- in my from what I understand, we can't trust the information that came out of there. We don't know exactly what everybody dies off. Yeah. I mean honestly. Yeah. Like two of the guys like drown. Okay. Yeah. Well, and they do a good job of keeping it a good job. They they keep it all within, <laughs> yeah. you know, and try not to get the data. <laughs> yeah. Um, at least that's the perception. But I what I've learned and, and I've learned this from my staff, if I'll own the fact that I didn't know this is what I was told and this is what I thought, but as we've moved forward this is what it is like, and this is what we need to do now. So if the CDC came out and said, you can do this, this, and this, and this is what we understand about the virus. And then two weeks later, they find it something different. They come in and said, listen, then this is what we thought. This is why we said that now we're here and understand it a little bit better. And this is why we're saying this versus, Oh no, masks aren't good for you. Masks are good for you. Masks aren't good for you. They don't, they're not going to prevent anything or whatever the narrative is. But, People don't want to own the fact that, or even explain the fact, you know, if people, if, if the reasons for masking were really explained and talked to about viral load and how it really, it's not going to prevent you. The thought process that a mask is going to prevent you from getting the virus is a wrong thought process. And that's, that's something we even talked with, uh, remember Dr. V, mm-hmm. Dr. Veer? Um, we talked about like how there's never a silver bullet in, in any type of science. Mm-mm. And I think that's what everybody's wanting. They're wanting yeah. a cure for everything. They either go to the far left or the far down, not the aisle, but just like on the pendulum. Yeah. They either Swings. are, yep. yeah, they're either far left or far right, either um, so conspiracy or not. It, it's, it's, there's it's never a really. silver bullet. So yeah. we have to take that collective approach um, to have a healthy thought process. So what you're saying is if at the beginning there was more communication um, on saying, Hey, this is novel. We don't really know a whole lot about it. This is what we want to do. You think it'd be a little different? I think, I think that that's if, if I was a government official and that was how I did it and not that I may not win any election because this is how I approached it. But if you own the fact that I didn't know, but this is what I was told, this was the best information I had to make the decision at that point. And that's what I'm telling my staff now. When we first did all of these things, this was the information I had. So this was the decision that we made. Now we've learned that that's not necessary. But staff is scared to death because this whole time we've been telling them they need this, this, and this in order to protect themselves. Well, truth be known, you don't need this, this, and this. You just need one of whatever this is. Just a mask. Just a mask. Or, you know, and, and I'm talking about, I mean, you could say that about anything mm-hmm. that comes up. You know, when you react that way, people think that that's how it needs to be. If And then when you start to back off, people think, well, they just they either run out of resources or they don't care or they, you know, it is what it is. But no, the fact is we've learned more about it and we know how to protect you. So we don't need all that stuff. And it's actually... What I'm, what I'm scared of happening in an ER setting is that we focus, when we focus on something like COVID and we try to identify COVID, we miss the big picture. And that's what I'm talking about when we talk about triage and identifying sick versus sick. If you come in and COVID is killing you, you need to go back. If you come in and COVID and you, you have COVID and I know it, but you're stable, you can wait. You come in and you're having a heart attack, you need to go back. You come in and you're having chest pain related to picking up a, a too heavy of a weight, you can wait, you know, there, there, we have, and, and that's what's scary about medicine and especially in the ER setting. I need to identify who needs to be treated right now. And when we start to focus on things like, you know, and we saw this when we, when we went through stroke 
process and just kind of back off of COVID for a second. But when we started teaching staff, because our stroke recertification is coming up, we started teaching them, hey, remember the signs of stroke, your arm weakness, whatever it is. So person checking in, the patient starts focusing on that. So somebody comes in, we saw this several times, somebody comes in with left arm pain or numbness and first thing to do, oh, code fast, we need to send this patient back, make sure they're not having a code, they're not having a stroke. Well, if they would have continued on with their assessment, the pain started with the chest pain. Mm -hmm. So now I have a person waiting for a CT who really needs an EKG and go to the cath lab. Mm. So when you start to put that in the mind of a medical professional that we need to focus on this, you're missing too much. Which the whole bl- is the it's the blinders is exactly. we've, we've talked about that a lot before. Exactly, it's very easy to get those blinders on. Yep. So yeah. So how do we how do we not? You don't you, you can't focus on it. I mean, you if you go to the basic, if I can, COVID is not going to change. You're not going to appear well and be dying. Does that make sense? Mm. Like if you come to me, if you come up to the ER and your sad is ninety nine percent, your heart rates. 65 your blood pressure is normal but it's pretty obvious that you got a fever you probably have covid you've been exposed to somebody that has it you're not dying i don't need to move you to the back into a special room i need you to wait until we can get you back in a timely fashion and make sure that everything's okay put a mask on you so you're not exposing everybody else any more than you already are and try to social distance you when, when we focus on that and say, oh, no, they have this person who just appears well has COVID. We need to get them into a room. So, but the person who comes in with an MI who doesn't have any respiratory symptoms or has whatever disease process we're looking at, doesn't have any respiratory symptoms, they're not really concerned that they have COVID, they can go in the waiting room because I don't have room for them because I have this, mm-hmm. this well patient sitting in a room because I'm concerned they have, you know, we don't want to expose people, this, but this isn't Ebola. You know, I, I can't put somebody who has a bowl in the waiting room because that's it's just not going to. I mean, 90 percent mortality. Right. Yeah. But, but that's the difference in now having the knowledge of what the disease process is and what to expect. Um, and and then from an emergency medicine standpoint, you, your best people are the people who don't assume you walk in. I can see sick, not sick. I don't really care what what's going on with you. If I'm if my only job is to determine if you need to go back or not, mm. I don't care what's causing it. I just need to know if you're, are you sick, or are you not? But when we start to identify, uh, we need to make sure that we pick out the strokes. We need to make sure that we pick out the COVID patients. That's not that person's job, and it shouldn't be. And as soon as we make it that person's job, we miss a lot. So how did you come to this mindset? Um, trial and error. You know, I mean, it, it's. It's by seeing the people who we, not in, not at Parkland so much, but in emergency medicine in general, mm-hmm. when you start to focus on things, you miss you miss important, you miss the important stuff, hmm. um, and or when you start to focus too heavily on one thing, if that make if, if no yeah if that makes much sense, but which I think that's kind of what we've done with COVID. We focused yeah. on one thing, um, whether it be mortality or it doesn't really matter. It's like okay, what is the big picture? Of this the big picture is that. We've shown how America doesn't do well in a pandemic or an epidemic. Something needs to change. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't do well when they're told what they need to do. And that was something I said before, like I've kind of realized, um, you know, people, we're all about freedom, but we've, uh, a lot of people have uh, pushed for their freedom so much that it's kind of become their own prison, you know, and you've kind of 
already robbed your own freedom by pushing for freedom too much. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like we having that choice is good. Like we want to have that choice, but it'll do what we want. America, even to this day, amazing country mm-hmm. compared to so many other places. Right. Have you been able to travel much at all? Like uh, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> it's much better here. I'm just uh, kidding. I still remember, man, I went to Nigeria a while back and, and it took them 45 minutes to get from the front. It was a, it was a guy with a base or skull fracture from MCC. And it took them 45 minutes to get this guy who I saw was a brand new EMT. And they like, imagine, so here's the room, their hospital is a Bush hospital and they, they roll this guy in. They kind of just carry him and they just throw him on the table and you see uh, blood trickling from the ears. You know, one's whole side of the face is just shattered. And, uh, they sat there talking about what to do for a long, 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 long time. And the OR was like, this is the ER. And this line right here was the OR. That's the OR right there. Mm. And all he had to do was move into a room. And it took him 45 minutes. It was like th- those type of things already shows us how really well off we are. Yeah. But now we can we know, okay, we've kind of, we've kind of got a little much on some of these things. How can we get more resources, a better response to a future pandemic. Cause this is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, they there was a, a study that showed about every hundred years ish. There's a bad uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. One that actually kills a lot of people. Yeah. 50 years or so there's, there's an okay pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to see more in the future. Mm-hmm. Like what needs to happen in the future is more, uh, uh, surveillance on zoonotic diseases because mm-hmm. of bats. <laughs> Watch yeah. out, man. Yeah. It seems like everything comes from a bat. Yeah. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Yeah. Or a bat mixing with some a random animal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A monkey. Yeah. So there, is, there needs to be more like surveillance on uh, the bat population and mm-hmm. less like, let's start surveying at square one. Yeah. Instead of, okay, now we have a disease that's in the population. And America doesn't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what's coming. Again, lack of resources. Right. Well, and I mean, this is this is very conspiracy theorish theorish of myself, <laughs> but people are watching how we've responded to this and don't mm. think that people can't develop this. Yeah. I mean, there's still the thought process that this was this was developed. Honestly, man, I think it is. Yeah. I think it was to now, be honest. I don't I, th- that being said, I don't know that it was meant it was developed to um to to be this kind of pandemic, I don't know that, and and I won't say that because I I don't know, and and I don't want to be that that person, yeah. you know. But <laughs> I I do. I, there's the ability to develop it, um, and and like I said, people people we have a target on our back because we're the best country in the world, and people are watching how we've how we've handled it. A lot and of so, people think this is the trial run. Get into conspiracy theories. I mean, there was there was one report. That was written in like, that was probably 20 or 30 years ago. It was a pandemic response plan. And it was this, it was pretty much this response plan. And it was saying this is a trial run. <laughs> so that's kind of scary. Yeah. But honestly, we could use it as a trial run and realize, okay, every hospital sucks. Right. <laughs> like, like the hospitals need to be, have, have some sort of uh, resource put in place. Mm-hmm. Now that's going to be more coordinated with local and national governments, mm-hmm. state governments. Right. Um, and that's going to take national leadership to be able to coordinate state government response plans for the local. So it's like, you know, top down type of thing. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, and it, it's elected officials, in my opinion, that will listen to who truly are the experts, you know, like, um, 
having committees put together with people that actually know what's going on versus somebody who was elected into an office who has a, a law degree or has something that really has no idea what happens in the, in the hospital, you know, and hospital politics are hospital politics. I mean, there it's, it's, it's literally it's its own political system. I took a class in grad school, my second grad school on basically hospital politics. I like how you snuck that in there. That was pretty yeah. great. Yeah. My yeah. second grad school, yeah. you know, well, <laughs> You know, Dude, you know, I mean, props flex. to me. That's awesome. That's all. I love that. I want to be like you one day, Mark. <laughs> no, no, it's a lot of debt for a lot of, for a lot of nothing. Um, but, but seriously, I, it, there's a, there's a lot of people that are, that are leading things that in my opinion, it's one thing as a leader that I hope I never get into that. I don't speak on something that, that I have the ability to find the expert on. Use your resources is what my mentor told me when I went to the going back to where we first started with all this is wanted to identify my mentors and one of my mentors in the first uh, when I went to Tarleton, I got my Kines degree. Um, I had a professor who I was I was in it to get out. That makes sense. I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to coach football. I wanted to coach sports, yeah. whatever. You just I need the undergrad, man. That's yeah. all you cared about. Didn't care yeah. about what else I did? I, I mean, I knew I wanted to coach because it was less stress. It was, yeah. you know, at least that's what I thought. You know, I had no idea. So get out and, and get my parents off my back so I could have that degree and be done. Um, and it wasn't until I got into, I, I, I didn't know anything about healthcare. Um, I took a class with him doing EKGs. I did stress testing, exercise stress testing, and learned about EKGs. And I just caught on. Like I got an interest that's in awesome. EKGs and was like, hmm. So I got to know his name is Dr. Priest. He's still he's still a professor over at Tarleton in the Kines department. Um, he actually runs a health and wellness lab talking about Bro, movement. Can and, you get him on for me? Yeah. I want I want yeah. him on this podcast. Yeah. So That'd be he awesome. would love to promote because here's the thing. His health and wellness lab is for spinal cord injuries. It's for um, individuals who have like uh, CP, cerebral palsy. So he brings them in. It's a free lab that he puts in through, and it has he has multiple grants that have funded it and done all kinds of amazing things. But he has that gets me excited. So, for example, one of the, one of the cool things, and I I don't know if we didn't ever get to this part, but I worked in the Bronx in New York City as a spinal cord research. I worked in spinal cord research. Of course you did. There. Yeah. But <laughs> I got it because I learned. I I got interest from him um, hmm. and learning. There's really a lot of simple things that we could do that would improve so much. So for example, you have somebody who has a spinal cord injury. If they sit in that chair and they're paraplegics and they sit in that chair for, don't, don't quote me on time frame, but say they're sitting that for a year, they're going to lose 90% of that bone mass. So if we ever do develop a way that they can walk again, they will never be able to do it because they don't mm. have the bone mass. If you put them in the standing frames, you have them support themselves in a standing frame just their weight, they lost 10% of their bone mass in like 15 years. Hmm. Just simple things like that. Quality of life, movement. So people, as soon as you're quadriplegic, they, they, they stop telling you to quit. You know, well, you might as well get your arms built up because you need this. But if you'll move your legs, you'll prevent the, you're preventing the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The wounds, mm. all of the, all of even those circulation, things. like, well, exactly. like PE, right? You yeah. get blood clotting. Exactly. So you're, you're just simple exercise and, and prevent and in regenerating some things. Now there's some things that obviously haven't come back, but same thing with the, he's had multiple stroke people who've had debilitating strokes come mm -hmm. in there and he has helped to get 
get them back their ADLs. And it's all about independent That's living crazy. as long as you can. And it's, it's life. Yeah, it's those little things though. It's not like these, like we were talking about diet earlier. Yeah. You don't need to go on a huge fast or a keto diet to be able to actually have a healthy lifestyle. Right. You don't need to make these huge sweeping changes, just these little things, you know. Okay, cerebral, cerebral palsy. Um, don't sit down, you know, your entire time. You know, yeah. actually start doing just little things, little exercises. That's what helps us in the long run. I think that's that mindset that we need for future pandemics. You know, our children or our grandchildren. Because, you know, we may not see, again, like another one of these in our lifetime. We may. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's our kids. Now it's going right. to be our grandkids. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. You need to talk to him because he is... Um, He's amazing. Wealth of knowledge. He wrote a book about it. Hmm. Um, he, what's that? I never heard of him. That's Dr. Priest. Yeah. Okay. Uh, look him up. He's Joe Priest. He actually At played. Charlton? Yeah. He played football. I think it's Sol Ross. Or was he Sol? He was a quarterback at one of, at one of the school about the size of Charlton. Huh. Uh, very, very interesting. I mean, a very interesting man to talk to. Very, br- he's uh, brilliant. Um, And that's the type of thing that I want to get more out there. You know, people don't know you until this podcast. You know, some some people have never heard your name. Um, And that still may may be the case after the podcast. But um, people need to know how hospitals are run, how the ER is, what the numbers are. Mm -hmm. Um, The people who are behind the scenes, maybe, who are really, okay, if I go into Parkland ER now, I know that. Mark, who's got a great heart and he knows exactly that he's trying to take care of his employees. He's extremely smart. That's something I can put confidence in. And that's kind of one of the main purposes for this podcast was to kind of bring these people together and and really raise awareness to what's really going on around in our community. Because that's just not happening right now. I think there was – I interview one guy – Brent was talking about he's a ex news anchor, and we're we're both just talking about how our generation, like kind of the younger generation, just doesn't watch the news anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the information that people are getting is through Facebook, yeah, <laughs> and it's just not not right. It's not right information. Yeah, so a lot of people are turning into podcasts, and mm-hmm. a lot of people are tuning into things happening nationally, which doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on what on your day to day life. Yeah. It's the local stuff yeah. that's going to happen. If you get a wreck in Dallas, you know about Parkland now. It's yeah. they got some great resources. So things like that, right? Oh, it makes sense, man. I don't know, man. It's it's, it's uh, you know, and the it's it's crazy what you're talking about, but it's for real. There's a lot of bad information that gets out, um, and people believe it, and that, that's that's what's crazy to me. These people that don't believe what we're saying, but will believe what's posted on Facebook. And hmm. I'm just like, are you, did you really? know that? Did you ever watch that um, Netflix original, uh, so the Social Dilemma? I believe so. The one about literally just all the social media markets. Yeah, and I, I'm almost certain I did. I, I don't. You should remember it because it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> is that? I don't. I think I did. Was it like a social experiment type of thing? Not experiment. They just talked about how um, basically every every uh, major news or major social media outlet has just grown so powerful, like beyond recognition where AI is really pushing all the algorithms and they go into how Facebook, um, like now, you know, you can have a thousand friends on your list, but you only follow 47 of them. Um, that's because they, they try and pair you with people who are alike and then they start getting to confirmation bias. And that's kind of what we've seen now. You know, you might believe some crazy outlandish thing on Facebook because it's already part of your confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. 
which I'm, I'm looking for like a sociology professor to talk about confirmation bias. Cause that's my kick right now. Yeah. Cause that's literally some of the things that we're having in these issues that we're seeing today Yeah, is people just getting in the cycle where they can't get out of it. Yeah. But on both sides, no matter what issue you're talking about, right. COVID is real or not. doesn't matter. Your people are just feeding what you want to believe. Right. It, it, it meets your agenda. And I, and I think that that's the, that's kind of the other the other thought process behind why people believe what they believe because it if it meets what their agenda is so people that know that if i believe this it's not going to affect my job it's not going to affect my family so i'm going to i'm going to choose to believe that that's that's what it is that i don't have any control over it that people want control and so they feel like if they can control their thoughts that way that that there's it means more to him. I don't. I don't know exactly how what I'm trying to say or how I'm trying to put that. But um, can you put it in like a real world example? So, just like going back to, I mean, I have a lot of friends in the oil and gas business. I don't know if you know this, but I also my I grew up on a ranch that I live on now, and that's what I do in my oh. spare time. Do so the, back do have the pictures of your house and that land that those views? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, that's. So that's the house you grew up on. No, we built. We just built that house. That's the land I grew up on. Whoa, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, so we're we're back there. I mean, I drive seventy five miles just so I can get out of town. <laughs> you know, so I mean, working at County House, but you kind of have to. Yeah. I mean, honestly. But so and it's just that support of of their agenda. So going back to the oil and gas business stuff, like knowing that people not being in business, people not driving, it's going to lower the cost of gas. It's going to really kill their job. So they choose to believe that it's a conspiracy to lower the gas prices. But that's, I mean, is that really what it is? I don't know. But that it meets their agenda. They feel mm-hmm. like that's controlling them so that it gives them a, a peace of mind thinking that they know what's controlling it. Do you think, that's, do you think that some of the um, elitists actually do have some of that control? Like the top 1% of the world who actually sway governments and... I think money speaks. Um, I, I don't. I don't want to get into that conversation because I don't know, yeah. um, yeah, and fair. I don't really have a, a huge opinion on it. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of going back to okay, what's more revel- relevant to me? Yeah, and I mean that's. I like. I control what I can control, and that's that's my peace of mind, and it's taken me a long time to get there. But if I can't control it, then I don't need to worry about it. You know, um, that's hard for me to do. Honestly, it's hard for everybody because everybody wants that, that the ability to control where they go in life and what they do. And I'm not saying we don't, we do have control to do certain things, but there's certain things that are out of our control. And as soon as you, you know, there's what's the, what's the saying or what's the, you know, uh, I can't think of the wisdom to know, can't think of the name of it right now, but it, it's, it's ringing a bell. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, oh, I like to think of that. It's basically <laughs> the to ability you. to the ability to control what you can control and know. That, uh, forget it. I had. To, I'll, <laughs> I'll think about it, but it, and know the difference basically of what you can and what you can't control. Um, and and the far, and as soon as you can figure it out, which it takes a lifetime to figure out what, it, what truly you can and what truly you can't control. But what you can control is how you feel and how you act. And that's all about, I mean, I'll never, 
I'll never regret how I treat somebody. And that's, I can control that. And I, Hmm. you can, I can't control how you feel about me, but I can control how I handle that. Hmm. You know? So it's not my ability to control somebody. It's just my ability to control how I feel about that. Yeah. Um, Hmm. And so I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm still one of those people. I, I, I like for people, I don't like for people to be mad at me. I don't, I'm one of those, I'm a people pleaser. I've always been that way. But at, at some point I've got to realize what I have to identify what's important for me, to me and, and work around that, whether you like it or not, you know, and that's just, that's kind of that control factor of, um, if you learn to control what you can, you'd be a lot. And to me, it's made me a lot happier. And that's kind of where we are today with pandemic fatigue. Cause that's literally why we're here today. Mm-hmm. Why a lot of people are just so done. Cause I'm done. I mean, I'm done. I'm yeah. so sick of hearing about COVID. Like, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure you are too. Cause you got to deal with it every day. Um, it's like, and that's definitely not taken away from people's struggles and, and the mortality of it. Um, but I think a lot of us are just so tired of the disease that we want to get back to our way of life. Yeah. And because we haven't been able to pretty much all year, we've lost that control over our lives. We've lost control of the economy and, and people are feeling it. And that's why yeah. we also have these crazy high numbers in mental health increasing now, which again, COVID actually has a huge impact on mental health attacking the central nervous system. Even yeah. they're finding that's even becoming more and more of an issue. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things that in the next, I don't know how long, however much longer we deal with it. I mean, it's, it's going to be around forever. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's ever going to be eradicated. It's not one of those things that it's not a bacteria. It's not. Yeah, but it's it, always going to mutate. Yeah. And the, 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 the things that, you know, have you ever heard of the framing heart, the framing hand study, I think is what it's called. The, the heart study. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to. We're not going to know until there's a group of people that have been following and, for 80 and years. Can, yeah, explain what it is because this is this is really foundational for a lot of what we do in heart research. Yeah, well, and it's it's how research is done, should be done. Should be done. <laughs> um, but it, Framingham study is is basically, it's a, it's a town. I don't remember where the town's at. I think it's in Pennsylvania is what I want to say. I, I don't know you. for sure, but don't, please don't go back. <laughs> but... Um, Okay, let's just blanket statement this. Don't quote anything Marcus said. All right, percent, a hundred percent. I don't want to call from my from Parkland's uh, communications department. And say, hey, we need to have a discussion about some stuff that you said on the podcast. Like, oh, yeah, I don't. Oh, dude, we didn't even get into some of the things that we could have gotten into. Oh, God, I mean, yeah. you know, I know. I, I said that when I came in. I was like, I make sure I don't say certain things. Um, but the Framingham study basically it just it followed people for a long time and just watch the development of heart disease in people. Um, and, and it just, what caused it just multiple tests, multiple things. And then obviously they, they produced the research on it. Um, and it, and it's amazing. It truly is. It speaks to how we treat and what we think causes. And we're still learning. And it's a long study. Yeah. It's like 80 years, I believe mm-hmm. for something that effect. Isn't that the longest that we've done? That's uh, I would want I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, even, even in heart disease, heart disease is old, but we're finding different things every day. You know, the, the new kick is inflammation. Cortisol. And, yeah. And inflammation and how it, you know, it's really the one that's causing true, true, not true. 
we've known for a long time. I mean, there's a study that was done by Schwartz um, out of, he's actually, I think it's UT San Antonio, uh, Dr. Schwartz back in the 70s. And it talks about the, I can't think of the exact name of the study, but it's atherosclerosis is what it is, a paper on atherosclerosis. And in that, it talks about the inflammation. But the inflammation truly is, I mean, inflammation is what happens when, you know, you have injury to something. And so once that injury occurs, it opens up and it brings in the things to heal it. And that's how it builds, it has the buildup of plaque. But that's, the inflammation has always been there, but now we want to focus on that. That's the problem. You know, the problem, Mm -hmm. it's always been there, but now we're learning more about how we can use diet to treat Mm. inflammation and how, what actually causes it. So using old research to define new ways is, is what medicine is, is in my opinion. That's how we can, it's not about developing a cure. It's not developing, it's, it's homeostasis. It's, it's just mm. like you talked about. That silver bullet, if we develop a silver bullet, it's going to cause another problem. Mm. You know, the more we manipulate, in my opinion, the more we manipulate nature, the more problems we're going to develop. Hmm. You know, so we, it's finding that right balance. We're going to solve it for a little bit of time, but it's just like the multi-drug resistant organism. Like mm-hmm. we've solved bacterial infections to some degree, but now nature has psych. Yeah, exactly. Where we're, we're the solving of the bacterial diseases is literally going to set us back 120 years back to like 1901. Yeah. Whenever we didn't really have antibiotics. Have you ever watched the movie little big farm? No. You need to watch it. It's okay. an interesting movie. It's, and it's, a, it's a documentary, but, um, and it's about farming. So, but it's, it's really interesting. It's how, um, a group of people came into a, a farm where they had plowed the whole time and really ruined the soil and it took them seven years, but they went back and they used, re- they used nature to, so for example, they had an influx of, uh, I'm trying to think exactly how this worked and and then it's not, it's not exact, but so they bought a bunch of cows because they had one problem. So they bought a bunch of cows to get whatever the cows started having, there was manure everywhere. So there'd been influx of flies. The flies were eating all of the fruit trees that they had and this and that. So that was a new problem. What they did, they brought in, I think it was birds, some kind of birds. And so the birds now are eating the flies and now there's, issues with the birds and so it was just developing an ecosystem that is already developed i mean it it's it's what it is Mm -hmm. but and by us manipulating it we've caused more issues and it's Mm -hmm. it's simply the same same concept yeah and and we're doing that homeostasis i like that yeah there's a do you guys do much on like uh like breathing techniques or research on on any of that for you even you personally no i have i mean i i did um I have done some, uh, really more through like sports technique and, yeah. and learning how to, uh, and it, and it, the same philosophy behind anxiety and, and all of that is develop is, is learning to control your heart rate. Um, and, and, and using breath, breathing techniques to slow it down and to speed it up. And yeah, and there's, there's a guy you got to check out, um, Wim Hof, the Wim Hof method. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's changed my life. Like literally I used, I used to always think that breathing techniques were, you know, Eastern medicine and it's all just BS. There's no research. Really. No. This guy named Wim Hof, um, got into all but mental health cause his wife committed suicide. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make this short. Um, 
long story short, uh, you do enough breathing techniques that you get hyper oxygenated, which increases your immune response um, by regulating one of the hormones, cortisol, mm-hmm. um, inflammation, so on and so forth. And they actually injected this guy with E. coli and he fought it off. Like, And then he did, he did a study with, I think it was 20 other people. So they did 10 people as a control and then 10 people as the experimental experimental doing the Wim Hof method. Hmm. And the 10 people who didn't do the Wim Hof um, got sick, you know, the typical E. coli, uh, diarrhea, so on and so forth. And the people who did the two weeks of Wim Hof method and got injected with E. coli all fought it off hundred percent of them. So things wow. like that, like, like what if our entire nation just did the Wim Hof method? <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously though, it, I, I do agree, especially with my background in the kinesiology part of it is diet and exercise alone would reduce the healthcare cost would reduce our reliance on the government to supply us with so much um you know i to me healthcare is a right um to to some degree uh i think it's a privilege for some you know i think that everybody deserves the ability to have to have emergency care taken um but at what point you know, I don't, mm. that's another, that, that's we'll, a whole, we'll, other, we'll hold off on yeah. getting into that topic because yeah. I know that that could be very touchy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and it, not even very touchy, but it's, it, yes, touchy, but it's also one of those things that, um, there, there's some, there's passion, obviously a lot of passion behind that and, and where mm. we should go and there's laws. Mtala is one of those mm-hmm. laws, but, um, you know, to, to, to be, to, to neglect people of care is, is inappropriate, um, but we do it in in a way where we don't we don't necessarily feel like we're doing it. If that makes sense, <sighs> yeah. So it, I mean, it, it just pushes the onus. No, you're right. You yeah. know. So well, it's it, interesting. Even like our the systems we have in place, if we just reduce the administrative costs, we build to uh, quote unquote insure every person in the entire nation mm-hmm. just by the extra paperwork. So really, the extra paperwork is what's caused a lot of our people not getting taken care of. Yeah. And whenever, and just so we know, like whenever people don't get taken care of for long periods of time, it actually increases the cost burden economically, right. exponentially, Yeah, you know, because now instead of it just being uh, a scab on your foot, it just now became infected and septic. And now you're on, on a vent because you're septic and you right. have a constant temperature of 105. So things like that, yeah. like these little like baby steps at the very beginning of having overall healthy mindset is so important. And yeah. I think that's what could have helped a lot with a pandemic and hopefully in the, in the future, future pandemics. Yeah. So we've been talking a long time. I know oh, we, want, we want to wrap it up, but I am curious. One last question um, for the future. What are like your hopes and dreams, aspirations, um, whether you're still at Parkland, um, even for Parkland, things that you want to see happen in your own life? Well, I mean, so uh, I'm actually just finished applying to get my doctorate. So we're, I'm what? working on that. Of course, I'm not surprised. How old are you? I'm 37. So I. It's possible, y'all. <laughs> it's possible. Right, right. <laughs> um, I should hear back in January on my acceptance to that. So Your it's doctorate in what? Healthcare administration. Okay. So. Um, Clay or, or nursing and <laughs> nursing administration. Dr. Hayworth. <laughs> I'm from the UK. <laughs> I think it's actually called executive leadership, but I don't, I don't Anyway, my, you know, there's, there's days I'm being hundred percent honest. There's days where I want to go back to bedside. I want to go back to the trauma. I want to go back to 
just taking care of the patient, worry about myself, you know, and, um, but there's, there's more days, still more days where I enjoy my job. I see a future. I can see, um, how we can affect how we provide care to people in bigger numbers. Um, my, my long-term goal is, is to get at a state and national level to, to change healthcare to a point where, uh, it's effective and efficient, um, and that we, we are better advocates for, um, each other really not even hmm. not even a patient but we uh we're so self-centered that you know we're looking back at what all this has started and this this hero concept of healthcare and yeah i'm i'm a, I'm a huge is not the right word but i'm not a fan of it um, i signed up for this i knew what i was getting into um, i knew there were going to be trying times you know it this is an infectious disease I signed up for. It. I'm not a hero. This is what I, this is what I wanted to do. Um, and the people that, that, that say they are heroes, uh, fine. I, it is, it is whatever, but, uh, you signed up for it. So mm-hmm. it, 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 to me, it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we deal with it. We move on. We do, we make the best of it. Um, but long term, that's, that's where I would really, I really prepare myself to go is that I, I, I want to incorporate long-term how we can provide better care to our population, whether it be, uh, and, and our population being human, not American, not whatever, mm. but not AI, not AI. <laughs> no. Um, I, I think that there's like, we've talked about throughout this whole thing. There's, there's so many, resources pushed in the wrong direction in healthcare. Um, you know, there's, there's insurance, there's medications, there's pharmacy, there's things that are needed that we obviously need to, to practice medicine and to be part of medication and taking care of people. But that the ability to actually take care of people, um, from an emotional and physical standpoint, but everything to do with the medicine or the insurance. It's just, it, but it's being able to, to do it. Hmm. Um, and, and having, getting people in front of the right, the right individuals to take care of them. Um, you know, there's, there's so many issues that the, this is really exposed healthcare in, in, in a way that, um, yeah. It, it's, and there, it, there's not a lot of people talking about that either. No. There's not a lot of people saying how this is exposing issues in healthcare. They're just saying COVID is terrible. Yeah. Which again, well, that's not it saying it's it not, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. It's just, again, the healthcare system has a lot of loopholes and it's showing that. Yeah. And that's what people need to get from this. Yeah. If anything, and that's, that's amazing. I love yeah. that you said that. Well, and it's, you know, we, from an ER standing and I, you, you were in the ER and you know it, it, we deal with it. We're, ER is a stepchild of the hospital. We're not inpatient. Mm-hmm. We're, not really outpatient. So we get, and, and but everything starts with us. So 90% of the people that come into Parkland and get admitted, they come through the ED. So and sometimes stay admitted in the ED. Exactly. So, but there's, it's just having that, there's so many silos and it, it Parkland is, is one example of, and we talk about it in our, in our group is that there's just, there's ICU, there's ER, there's, 
med surge, there's oncology, there's all these little parts of medicine, but that's, we got to get away from that, in my opinion, and say, we're here to take care of the individual. And this is how we're going to, this is what we need to do to, to verify that we're doing the best we can. Um, and it, I mean, it, there, it's just a passion to, to be able to provide care to people who need it. Hmm. And, and, and until we can do that, we're, we can need to continue to work on it, which we need to continue to work on it probably forever because mm-hmm. it's just human, it's just human nature to be self-centered and, and want to take care of yourself before you take care of others. And that's, that's a difficult, um, it's definitely a calling to get into, to being in healthcare. Hmm. Yeah, dude, you, you're awesome. Much respect for everything you do. Um, you we're at like you? hour and 50 minutes roughly. You're good, man. We got, so yeah, I'm this was, we got to yeah. dip out of here, but, yeah. um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, yeah, man. Of course, man. It's Anytime. been a truly pleasure. Yeah. Same here. It's good to see you. It's been, you a, it's been a while. Dude. <laughs> it's been a minute. It's been a while. I All right, bro. Need to go find us a trauma to get into. Uh, no. <laughs>